When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Apparently, this is how they retaliate when you report facts they don't like. This White House does not seem to value an independent press. There is a word for that line of thinking. The word is un-American. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about Donald Trump, the president who may end up urging everyone to get immunity. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. Despite holding the White House and both chambers of Congress, the Republican Party may be on the verge of a civil war. The immediate blame goes to the collapse of the American Health Care Act, the GOP's attempted replacement for the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. Unwieldy and poorly drafted, the AHCA couldn't get off the ground, killed by a combination of interest groups, Democratic opponents, and hesitant Republican lawmakers. It's that last group that drove much of the action, and as such, it's that last group that has come under fire from President Trump. The weekend after the bill failed, Trump tweeted that Democrats are smiling in D.C. that the Freedom Caucus, with the help of Club for Growth and Heritage, have saved Planned Parenthood and O'Care. This past Thursday, he doubled down on that message, warning that the Freedom Caucus will hurt the entire Republican agenda if they don't get on the team and fast, adding, we must fight them and Dems in 2018. It is a major step to threaten a primary challenge against fellow partisans, the kind of move that could turn the Freedom Caucus into outright opponents with the power to derail Trump's entire agenda, which still has tax reform and infrastructure on the horizon. It's serious, and when added to the real divides and fractures in the Republican coalition, promises a genuine fight for the direction of the party. To talk about that fight, we have Claire Malone of 538. But before that, a few tweets. Remember when the failing New York Times apologized to its subscribers right after the election because the coverage was so wrong, now worse. If the people of our great country could only see how viciously and inaccurately my administration is covered by certain media. The Freedom Caucus will hurt the entire Republican agenda if they don't get on the team at fast. We must fight them and Dems in 2018. The failing New York Times has disgraced the media world, gotten me wrong for two solid years. Change libel laws? If Rep. Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, and Raul Labrador would get on board, we would have great health care and massive tax cuts and reform. Mike Flynn should ask for immunity in that this is a witch hunt. 
excuse for big election loss by media and dabs of historic proportion. Our guest today to talk about Republican infighting and dysfunction is Claire Malone, senior political writer for 538. Hi, Claire. Welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, Jamal. Good to be here. So let's just jump into it. This has been a tumultuous week for Republicans, and specifically after yesterday when President Trump threatened to primary members of the House Freedom Caucus who opposed his health care bill. So uh, my question to you uh, first is, how plausible is that? You know, from my view, it doesn't seem like there's there's many teeth behind that threat. But do House Freedom Caucus members have anything to worry about from President Trump? Well, the short answer is some of them do, maybe more than others. This is actually we we sort of been talking in our office about Freedom Caucus ideology for a while. Uh, you know, we've written a little bit about how they sort of act in some ways like a different party almost than the Republicans, a sort of party within the party. But we did a vote analysis that's that's up this morning by um, Perry Bacon and Harry Enten, two of my colleagues. And it turns out that the Freedom Caucus members who are most vulnerable, sort of putting together how much they won their districts by versus how much Trump won their districts by. And it looks like Mark Meadows and Raul Labrador are actually a couple of people who are more vulnerable than the other 30-some Freedom Caucus members and others. And they are, they also happen to be, you know, two of the, the core four, basically. You know, Meadows is the official leader. Raul Labrador is a pretty, he's sort of, you know, the one of the, the big ideology guys in the Freedom Caucus. So there is, I think, some worry from their end of things. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be totally sleeping soundly if I were Raul Labrador or Mark Meadows. But it's a, it is a crazy thing for a sitting Republican president to do to Republican members, no matter how intransigent. I think you'd usually try to scare them in private. Right. That's the crazy thing to me. Um, and it seems like precisely because this administration is so full of craziness that the conversation about this threat and the one last weekend, not the threat so much, but when he tweeted that um, Democrats must be happy that you know Freedom Caucus members and Club for Grove helped save Obamacare and Planned Parenthood. But everything going on is so crazy that it's easy to forget that it's actually kind of unprecedented for a, as you said, a sitting president to just like come out and start beefing with members of his own party. Right. It's crazy because he still wants to enact a legislative agenda. And for better or for worse, the Freedom Caucus is well-organized. And, you know, I think some people have said, well, Trump can just, you know, work with the Tuesday group with more moderate Republicans. But it, it is, it's an interesting to sort of cut off one path. You know, it's it's not good. It's not traditional general generalship. And I might go as far as to say it's not a great strategy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it also makes me wonder, you know, if you sow seeds of dissent this early with a group that is married to ideological, the ideological purity of conservatism more than fealty to the Republican Party. It makes me wonder, not to bring up 2020, but like what the heck happens if, you know, Trump gets primaried by, you know, say someone who took umbrage of sort of months or years of mistreatment. And I, I just think it's a, it's a it's a kind of a weird thing to do. Right. And you can kind of easily imagine a situation where 
you know, and because he can't get Freedom Caucus members, Trump tries to work with Democrats and maybe some Democrats end up working with him and he passes some kind of legislation with kind of the bulk of the Republican caucus and, and some Democrats and that by itself just kind of generating huge uproar among conservatives that could lead to a primary challenge against him. Right. Totally. And I, I think, you know, they want to do tax reform stuff next. And I, I also wonder how that's going to shake out. I mean, you know, people, I think you guys were talking about this on the, the Slate Political Gab Fest about, you know, what sort of route they would go with tax cuts. I mean, the Freedom Caucus, again, has some very particular ideas about, you know, what the sort of financial and tax code of, of the U.S. government should look like versus what Trump might be be looking for and and in the form of, to be frank, sort of an expedient win. You know, there's the infrastructure project where Trump might work with, with Democrats, but those are only, you know, there's there are also countless other sort of minefields to, to go in the next, you know, four years of his presidency. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's baffling. One major minefield coming up is just um, the budget and, and authorizing government spending for at least, you know, the next year or so. The Continuing resolution um, that's been funding the government runs out at the end of April, roughly the end of April. And thus far, there doesn't seem to be any real direction from the White House or from Congress about how they're going to deal with that. So are, is this something um, you've been thinking about? Is it, you know, do you have any sense of um, what the, what the plan is uh, from Republicans and whether or not this Freedom Caucus problem will pop up there as well? I have no sense for what their strategy is whatsoever, but I do think that we should be, that Mick Mulvaney is poised to be the man of the moment, right? He's, he's Trump's, you know, budget director, a former member of the Freedom Caucus, and a, a, a pretty, pretty uh, influential member in the caucus. And I can't help but think that he's going to be put sort of monkey in the middle in this upcoming budget battle, right? Trying to sort of be a friendly messenger of the White House's kind of unfriendly message to the Freedom Caucus. So I, I kind of feel bad for Mick Mulvaney, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, I think I read some some item a couple days ago that, that Trump sort of has been sending already some tough messages to the caucus through Mulvaney. But I don't really know, you know, I'm still kind of trying to get a sense of things of, of how they feel, how the, how the caucus itself is going to approach this, this budget, the idea that you could have a government shutdown. And I think, you know, it's not out of the realm of crazy to say that the Freedom Caucus is, you know, they, they are, I actually think it was Devin Nunez that, that called them, what, lemmings with suicide vests. This is like in two years ago when Ryan Lizza wrote about their formation. But um, they are, they can be ideologically extreme, tactically extreme. So if they don't like something that Trump is doing with, with the budget, I could see it getting a little... Uh, Tense, shall we say? Yeah, I I guess I have this thought, you know, after Trump won, um, that like, you know, at least, hey, at least we're not going to have any weird brainsmanship for four years, right? That they'll be able to figure out something, even if it's like destructive and terrible, uh, that the Republican Congress and Trump would be able to at least fund the government, not have any showdowns over the debt ceiling or anything like that. But we're in this unusual place where that that that's not true at all. Where because of the Freedom Caucus, and I want to say not just because of the Freedom Caucus, but because of Trump's unusual relationship to the Republican Party as a whole. I mean, he's 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 like a Republican, but not really. He doesn't really have any like institutional connections to the party. His political standing, he's not really very popular. Um, his political standing is a bit independent of the Republican Party. And so yeah. 
I don't know. I'm just now I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but it's it's this this situation where he he's tofu. He's like he's like political yeah. tofu. You can put it. You can put anything you want onto him. And so when he was running. In some ways, like I remember sitting down with a group of like seven or eight Freedom Caucus guys in July, and this was just when the shift was. They used to, a lot of them are former Cruzians, right? Because you know, constitutional right. conservative, ideological purity that makes sense with Ted Cruz. But this was at the point where sort of the writing was on the wall. He's going to be the nominee. He's going to be maybe the president. <laughs> well, we didn't know that then, but uh, <laughs> they were. <laughs> they literally said, "I, I believe it might have been Mick Mulvaney who said this to me." which was, listen, we're excited about this because Trump means that the, the balance of power shifts back to, from the White House to Congress, right? They kind of saw Trump as this Blake slate. And I think it wasn't crazy for them, the Freedom Caucus, who had fashioned themselves as outsiders, to recognize Trump as this guy who maybe would be picking up what they were putting down, right? Trump ran as an outsider. Um, but then he's come into office and has acted in many ways like a traditional Republican, right? Or, you know, a, a Mike Penceian Republican. Um, so I think there is a certain maybe jolt that the Freedom Caucus had where they thought that Trump would be a little bit more, I guess, in line with, with what they were trying to do. But, you know, Trump right. appointed a pretty typical cabinet, right? He's He's not really acting in the radical way that he promised his base. And I think it's it'll be interesting to see whether or not Let's say that the what we call the reluctant Trump voters, those kind of like, you know, people in say Georgia six who are now making that an interesting election. Those sort of traditional, maybe college-educated white Republican voters who are sort of saying, "I don't like Trump personally, but I'm going to vote for Republican." What do they think of this guy now? You know, like I think right. it's a very interesting question, and it speaks a lot to. I've said this before, but it's you know the Democrats are going through a very public you know, reckoning with where the hell their party should go. And it's pretty obvious that it's in dire straits and they're, you know, taking steps to fix it. But Trump winning the presidency papered over a lot of existential problems that the Republican Party has, which is it has pretty big factions and like widening ideological chasms between its its wings. And I think the healthcare fight and what's going to come up in this spring with, you know, budget fights and the Freedom Caucus are just, they're exposing these weaknesses that the Republican Party really has that Trump winning didn't fix. Right. And and to add to that, there doesn't seem to be anyone within the Republican Party that can bridge those gaps. I mean, Trump, because of his outsider status with the party, because of the fact that he's not very experienced, because of the fact that he doesn't seem actually particularly interested in bridging any gaps and seems to be running against other Republicans as he was running against his opponents in the primaries or against Hillary Clinton, is not that person. But Paul Ryan also isn't that person. Paul Ryan, who is the closest thing to a consensus figure that exists in the Republican Party, cannot wrangle his members. And I think that's also been one of the big shocks of the last couple of weeks that Ryan, who I suppose we all thought was, if anything, competent at keeping the GOP together, can't do that. He has no particular leverage over his most conservative members and is himself so ideologically driven that he he can't really he's not prepared to cut the kinds of deals with his more moderate members that say John, John Boehner may have been willing to do, which just compounds this entire this entire problem of of the fractures and divisions within the party. Yeah, I don't know who their unifying figure is. That's a great point. I mean, and Paul Ryan, the fact that Paul Ryan appears to be kind of bad at politics, at least on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a, it's, it's funny, but it's also sort of, um, it's fascinating because 
while they were the party not in power, Paul Ryan was held up as the virtuous figure, right? This this person right. with pure ideas. But I mean, a lot of people found Lyndon Johnson reprehensible personally, but you know, he pushed through a lot of stuff. So it's sort of funny where you, you have to you do have to at least have someone on your side who can who can push forward. Yeah, I don't know who that figure is in the Republican Party. And a lot of them I think a lot of the other smart, interesting people who maybe ten years ago would have been thought of as like potential interesting figures for like presidential for like a presidential primary run, someone like Ben Sass. Like, I wonder if that guy gets reelected to Senate, you know, he's because he's so, right. um, you know, on the outside of things. No, it, Yeah, no, I was I was just thinking that because Ben Sass, you, yeah, you're right. You could imagine Ben Sass or um, uh, the Arizona senator um, whose name Flake, I suddenly Jeff forget. Flake. Jeff Flake. Right. These are guys who are actually pretty appealing mainstream figures. Um, you can imagine them going quite far. But because because of Trump, because Trump has been this sort of you know, divisive force within the party during the campaign made people take sides. And now everyone's sort of warily warily circling him. It's not clear whether they have the ability to step up as as unifying figures. And certainly no one who ran last year can do that. Marco Rubio has seemed to sort of disappear into obscurity as as is Ted Cruz. So it's, it's fascinating. And part of me wonders, I mean, if next year, next year's House elections, if Republicans end up losing the House, and you know, I don't think it's likely that they lose the Senate just because of the math, but any, anything, anything can happen. But if they lose a chamber of Congress, the kind of recriminations that we're seeing among Democrats right now may pale in comparison to what happens among Republicans, because oh, totally. it would be a legitimately historic event for that to happen, and it would... Um, likely be driven by a, an extremely unpopular president. So yeah. I, I sort of think that right now we're kind of we're in sort of the the prelude, the potential prelude to some massive uh, intra-party battle. I think it's true, and I don't know. I mean, I think the the idea that next year's primaries are going to be so interesting is so true. It, like you know, Trump is already calling for people basically to primary these Freedom Caucus guys, but I can also see in certain you know it'll be interesting to watch these suburban, wealthier districts that, have, that you know, say in North Carolina or something tended to go Republican. Who who are the candidates, you know, if there's a seat up in, in a district like that, maybe like a like a sort of Jeb Bushian Republican runs and tries to, you know, and swings the balance. I don't know. I think it's kind of like a an open season in 2018, which is really interesting. No, it's a big um, open bag. And I, you know, I've kind of given up prediction for the most part, but here I'm both tempted to make predictions and I have no idea what those would look like. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have been talking to Claire Malone, senior political writer for 538. Claire, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Always a pleasure, Jamal. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Jason here, and I've been producing this show since we launched just a little over a year ago, but this is probably the first time you're hearing my voice. Uh, and there's a reason for that. This past Tuesday, we did a show with Bloomberg reporter Caleb Melby about the building on 666 Fifth Avenue, which is essentially hemorrhaging money for the Kushner family. And on that show, we talked about Anbang Insurance Group and their interest in striking a deal with the Kushners. Since then, those talks have fallen apart and the Kushners are still looking to strike a deal elsewhere. And for a quick update on that story, I'm on the line with Caleb. Hey, Caleb, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, no problem, Jason. 
So quickly, what led to the breakdown of these talks between Ambang and the and the Kushners? Well, we can't be quite sure what was uh, uh, the death blow, but we know that Charlie Kushner, uh, Jared's father, was in China for several days for talks with Ambang, and they weren't able to close the deal. Now, there's there could be a few reasons for that. Um, Ambang may have been spooked by the potential for conflicts uh, with the Trump White House. It may have been that they decided that the deal was too rich. Uh, again, this this is a deal that uh, would have valued the building at a sky high. Two point eight five billion would have refinanced another billion and a hundred million dollars of debt, and uh, it called for a four billion dollar construction loan on top of all of that to turn it into uh, a, a high rise condominium tower. And uh, so we we don't know for sure, but uh, we do know that the Kushners are now actively looking for somebody else. Uh, to do uh, that deal or some version of it with. Right. So one last thing before we go. Earlier this week, Jared Kushner agreed to be questioned by the Senate Intelligence Committee as part of their inquiry into the ties between Trump and Russia. Um, Tim O'Brien, one of your colleagues over at Bloomberg, wrote a piece today, the deal between Ambang and the Kushners fell apart, to say that the senators should question Kushner about the building on Fifth Avenue as part of their investigation. Um, can you fill us in on what you think the senators might be looking for there? So I, I, it seems like a ripe opportunity when you have Kushner in in front of a panel like that uh, to to try try and just suss out again as as we discussed uh, uh, earlier in the week. Like I mean, this is this is a totally new phenomenon to have a president who has these far flung business assets and family who has, have far flung business assets, and it's especially concerning, you know, like uh, when they're in a tough spot and they need a deal done. And in this particular case, it looks like they need a deal that not too many people would be interested in. It's uh, maybe uh, sovereign wealth funds, which would cause their own conflicts, or private equity funds, which are not readily transparent to us, um, are are the types of buyers that they'd probably be looking for on a deal like this. And it it, it certainly seems like a great opportunity to ask Jared Kushner, who is, of course, not the most public uh, member of, of that family, about uh, how he perceives uh, his business and his assets uh, influencing uh, the policy decisions he makes as a senior advisor or, or, or tell us that they don't. I believe the Times reported that Jared Kushner had met with the head of a Russian bank or a Russian bank official. Do you know in what capacity they met or if there might have been any discussions about this building on Fifth Avenue? Yeah, yeah, I, I, he um, he had, um, and it's unclear as of yet. Um, the Kremlin and the White House have offered conflicting reports as to whether or not that that meeting occurred in Jared's role as a member of the White House or in his role as head of uh, Kushner Companies. I, I've seen a, a few conspiracy theories uh, <laughs> around those talks since. Um, it doesn't strike me as likely that uh, Jared would have been seeking financing from a bank that's under U.S. sanctions, like you would have to have to make a lot of leaps and bounds uh, to get to that conclusion, even for a deal that's seeking international buyers such as 666 Fifth Avenue. Got it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Caleb, for joining me for this quick update. Yeah. No, thanks for having me, Jason. And that's our show. Today's Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Jacob Weisberg is the brains behind this operation. 
And one more thing before I go. Trumpcast is going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival on April 30th in Manhattan. Come watch and listen as me, Jacob Weisberg, and Virginia Heffernan have a frank conversation on the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Tickets are on sale now, and Slate Plus members get a 25% discount. Come see us. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast. I cannot tell you how upset I am with the Freedom Caucus. Freedom, D-U-M-B. What are these people thinking? I am the. Pre- I have enough crap to deal with with the Democrats and all this Russia fake news. I don't need Republicans fighting me. I will fight these guys. 2018, they are going to be out. Get in line or get out or I will make your life so miserable. Believe me, I can be very mean. I think people know that.